0: Lord, take my lips and speak through them, take our minds and think through them, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Yesterday afternoon my family and I had the pleasure of exploring the Kusawati River up in North Georgia. We made our way up from Carter's Lake following a gentle waterfall upstream. As is usually the case, sensing weakness in their middle-aging parents, our two boys made a break for it and headed up the rocks that were dotted around the cascading water faster than the rest of us could keep up with. And it wasn't too long before we had lost sight of them. Being a classic Generation X parent, my mind was split between wanting our boys to have some freedom to roam and not wanting one or both of them to come tumbling down the river, blood pouring from the head they'd just gashed open, having slipped on a rock they're jumping to. So I did what I suspect many parents of my generation try to do. I attempted to keep a cool distance keeping a lookout for them and so satisfying my helicopter parent pathologies, yet holding back enough so as not to cramp their style too much. I failed, of course, mostly because there's nothing quite like the thought of your child white water rafting on their behinds to their deaths (laughs) to kick in the protective parenting instinct. So I fumbled and stumbled my way upstream No subtlety, no grace, just bluster. Foolishly, I had left my glasses behind and so being nearsighted, (laughs) the figures I was chasing were hard to place, as was the riverbed that lay beneath the water. And so taking one step at a time, I felt my way up. Hopefully, I'm not now on YouTube, placing one foot gingerly forward until it hit something solid beneath it. Feeling for the watery floor, my mind couldn't help but go to Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, where at the end of the journey, Christian, the character struggling to lead a life of faith, is required to cross a fearsome river. He's there with his companion, Hopeful. And as the pair began to wade the waters, Christian cries out in distress, I sink in deep waters, the billows go over my head, all his waves go over me, to which hopeful replies, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. I feel the bottom, and it is good. It is all we are looking for in this life in so many ways. The opportunity to place our feet on secure land to know that even if circumstances take us to great depths of despair and suffering, the ground is good. That as we feel for the bottom, we will find our footing is sure. Bunyan's allegory for the Christian life that asks us to examine where it is that we might find our hope also must take us this morning to the agony of mothers and fathers who at our borders also feel that fierce parenting instinct to be able to see that the children of their own flesh and blood are well, are cared for, are not lost to the waves. What agony must those parents and their children have been feeling as they have been separated from one another these past days and weeks? We live in unprecedented times, don't we? According to the UNHCR, you and I are witnessing the highest levels of human displacement in history. In 2017, 68 million people around the world were forced from home, among them some 26 million refugees, over half of whom are under the age of 18. How did we get to that state? How is it that 13 million children wander the earth in flight from their homelands? And how is it that when some of them arrive here, they are put in cages? Or when they arrive at the British border, they are held in tents? Or when they are crowded onto boats to cross the Mediterranean, they drown? The global refugee crisis is, of course, a complex web of interrelated political, economic, cultural, and religious challenges that transcend individual states and is deserving of sustained study. Indeed, on this Sunday in the year when we draw to mind the plight of refugees and continue to discern what our calling, individually and as a church, might be to respond to them I know that there are people here today who have far greater understanding of the issues involved, and I commend to you to hear some of them speak during our forum after the service. Yet I wonder if there is something that our scriptures have to teach us for how we might be better placed to enter such debate and decision-making, not only for what we might be inclined to, but also for what we might wish to avoid. Let's begin with the Hebrew Scriptures, with what I shall call the David problem. When I was a child, the story of David and Goliath had something of a macabre fascination for me. Firstly, Goliath seemed to me to be inhumanly large. I thought of him as the kind of kid I never wanted to meet on the rugby field at school, yet invariably did. Secondly, Goliath seemed unconscionably fond of gratuitous violence. Take, for instance, how he greets young David. Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. Thirdly, and equally gruesome, is David himself. For me, a somewhat eerie figure in the story who takes his smooth stones from the dry riverbed and in a flash, strikes this giant of a man dead. However, the David problem is not the gruesome nature of the story. It has that time and again our society has come to trust that this is the way that God wills for the world to be. Not merely that the lowly should overcome the mighty, but that the world is set up in binary. Us versus them. Insiders versus outsiders. And so the foreigner is not only other, but the dangerous other, whose very existence poses a threat to our own. It is not that all people think this way, of course. It is merely that enough people can be persuaded to think this way, And to be clear, this is not a global problem, not one that is unique to this nation alone. For my own part, North America is now the fourth continent in which I have lived, and the David problem of seeing the world in binary has been present in each of them. Catholic versus Protestant in Belfast, Hindu versus Muslim in Kashmir, Afrikaner versus Hulu in Orange Free State, South Africa, and here... Well, we're spoiled for choice, aren't we? For in this beautiful land of opportunity that has extended a home for all the world's tired and poor and huddled masses, we are a living contradiction of exceptional promise, yet alongside it, generation to generation of sectarianism. Let us not give in, then, to an easy two-way division of the world. Moving to the gospel, we might also seek to avoid another common danger ever present in Scripture, the tendency to give the work to God and forgetting the essential role we have to play. One of the interesting themes in the gospel of Mark we heard from this morning is something biblical scholars call the secrecy motif, the Persistent narrative thread that runs through the gospel where Jesus performs a great miracle and then asks those around him not to tell anyone. Theologically, there's a sense in which today's gospel is of a similar ilk. Why is Jesus, all-knowing, who surely foresaw that the boat would end up riding into a storm, sleeping? Well, one explanation is that he wanted his disciples to work it out for themselves. If Jesus is to be a mere miracle maker, then all we need to do is pray for deliverance and hope that the hard part of life is taken care of by divine order. As persistent as these may be in some corners of the Christian faith, as well as in the corridors of power, David's binary world of giants and giant slayers and Jesus' world of miracle makers and his fortunate recipients, None of it really gets us very far if we're serious about our vocation as those who will strive for justice and peace for all people. Instead, we will have to turn to Paul and his extraordinary second letter to the church in Corinth, one which as soon as we begin to hear the word so clearly is meant for a day like today, as we recall the heartbreak of the lives of so many of the world's refugees. We are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. It is, for me, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that says that even in its denial, even as the vast beauty of human life is reduced to the shadow of an existence, that which has become as nothing still possesses everything. In the living power of God's abiding and irrefutable love. For it is through the power of such a love that those who are treated as impostors, who are taken away, are not removed of their fundamental dignity, but remain true to the identity that they and all people claim as the beloved of the living God. It is through the power of such a love that those who do not possess official papers, having fled homelands with the shirts on their backs and in fear of their lives, are not rendered invisible but are seen and known to their very depth of their beings by the God who knit each of them into a being in their mother's womb. And it is through the power of such a love that the sorrowful somehow rejoice and the poor somehow find riches and that these extraordinary witnesses to the persistence of grace on this earth are not nothing but possess all that you and I will ever need. The knowledge that we are found in God. To know such a love, though, is not to trust that it is God's work to give it, but ours to discover and share. Open wide your hearts, Paul urges the Corinthians, and so must we. Our vocation as a human family, is to be one body in spite of our being many. There is so much to discover about one another, so much more than a binary world or the God of our fantasies that will save us can offer. This world and its people are for us to treasure and be treasured by, to love with a spendthrift generosity that begins with the simple gift of friendship, a gift that is offered to each of us today. Will we strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? We will, with God's help. Amen.